right, so this morning we're starting John chapter 11. We'll be looking at those first 16 verses from John chapter 11. I'll read those 16 verses and pray together. And then we will um, look at what the Lord is going to show us. Starting with verse 1 in the 11th chapter of the Gospel of John. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you are going there again? And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And after saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. O oh Lord, thank you for your mercies that you pour into us with your word. Thank you, Father, for giving us the hope of resurrection and life through Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for delivering us from this bondage of death, as Paul says, and giving us new life, life in you and you in us. And Lord, I pray now as we look at these 16 verses to see what it is you would show us this morning about you and about us, that our eyes would be opened, our ears would be opened, and our hearts would be made ready to receive what you would give us. And I pray, Father, that nothing would come forth from my mouth that is not what you would have said. In Jesus' holy name, amen. So... Chapter 11, to understand in the big picture of the Gospel of John, chapter 11 is a transition chapter, right? While telling the story of Jesus raising Lazarus and the consequences of Jesus' actions are the primary purpose that John has here, it serves as a transition from being about who Jesus is and who believes in him and all the previous 10 chapters to everything that John records, Jesus' life and resurrection and the final week of his life. 
In fact, everything that John records starting in chapter 12 to the end of chapter 20 takes place in a, within 15 days. Almost a third of the Gospel of John is just 15 days. The time between chapter 20 and 21 is unclear. But here in this chapter, Jesus is making his final miraculous sign. The raising of Lazarus is also a way that John frames the gospel from the miraculous signs that Jesus has done throughout his public ministry. This is the last one. The water being turned into wine in chapter 2 being his first one. That was the beginning of his public ministry. This is the end of it. This chapter opens with Jesus still in Bethany on the east side of the Jordan River. And Jesus is actively seeking to avoid confrontation with the Jews until it is time for his crucifixion. But make no mistake, our Lord is in complete control of everything happening to him and when it happens. He and the Father are not just in unity on what happens, when they are in unity on the sovereign control of who, what, when, and where it happens. Their sovereign control is even now with Lazarus' death. Absolutely nothing happening here. I want to emphasize this. Absolutely nothing happening here in chapter 11 is random or by chance. As we will see over the next few weeks, every action or inaction is intentional and deliberate by our Savior. So, getting started here in these first couple of verses... Who are Lazarus, Mary, and Martha? John is the only one to record the resurrection of Lazarus. Matthew and Luke record the resurrection of the synagogue ruler's daughter. Luke also records the resurrection of the widow's son in the city of Nain. But they don't record Lazarus' resurrection, which seems kind of odd to some people. The most likely reason is that when Mark writes his gospel, as well as probably when Luke and Matthew write theirs, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are still alive, living near Jerusalem. And at those points in the early church, emphasizing Lazarus' resurrection could endanger the trio from the Jewish authorities. So, as a way of protecting them, they intentionally leave it out. Now, in the 90s, a good 60 years after Jesus's resurrection, John records his gospel and puts the resurrection of Lazarus in because it's no longer a danger for the trio to be mentioned. He also starts out by saying that Mary was the one who anointed him. Well, here John is referring to an instant that just has not been recorded yet. In fact, it starts out in chapter 12 is where he says, where he tells us about uh, Mary anointing Jesus's feet. And remember, John is writing in the 90s, and even though readers have not read this yet, it is an instant known among the believers of that time from different uh, oral stories being told about Jesus by the apostles and teachers over the course of time. And while this is our first introduction to the trio themselves of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, as we will see, they are very beloved by Jesus. And that becomes an important part of understanding this story. So then the sisters decide to send for Jesus. 
They send messengers from Bethany near Jerusalem to this other Bethany that's on the other side of the Jordan River. Now this trip by foot would take a full day by a person walking from Bethany near Jerusalem to Bethany east of the Jordan. So one full day just to get to where Jesus is and to tell him that Lazarus is sick. Being a total of two days if he left immediately upon hearing it. So one day for the messengers to get to Jesus and another day for him to get back to this other village of Bethany. By the time the messengers reached Jesus, Lazarus' conditions would have already been serious. So any delay in going to Lazarus could be fatal for him. Yet, Jesus is not going to Bethany immediately. In what seems to be completely a perplexing choice, he delays for two full days. But, in fact, we learn from verse 39 that Jesus could not have gotten there in time anyway. Lazarus, according to the narrative, Lazarus died shortly after the messengers left Bethany to go find Jesus. So Jesus then says to the crowd of his disciples and those who were there that Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. But Lazarus dies. Well, how, well, how does that work? This won't end in death, but he dies. How are we to make sense of that statement? I mean, Jesus just doesn't have nonsense talk. He just doesn't gibberish so when he says this one not end in death, it has to mean something, even though Lazarus does die. Now, it is true that Jesus speaks figuratively of death as sleep here, and this was a common usage in Jesus' day. Uh, there are many examples in the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament into the Greek language, which was what everybody read in Jesus' day, or most people read in Jesus' day. Also from Jewish literature of that time period, there are instances where they referred to death as sleep. And then in addition to ancient tombs in Palestine, we see, or they see, has been seen, tombs with Greek and Latin written on them that speak of death as sleep. So Jesus leaves his words open to interpretation instead of speaking plainly on that day that the messengers arrive. That doesn't quite seem satisfactory, though, to explain this idea that it won't end in death, but Lazarus dies. Well, verse 11 gives us the answer. Lazarus' death does not look like the finality of death to Jesus. Our Savior knows that Lazarus' death is just temporary. He is going to Bethany to heal Lazarus, but he's going to Bethany to heal Lazarus of the greatest illness, the illness of death itself. Jesus and the Father allow Lazarus' death so that Christ is glorified and the Father is glorified in Lazarus' resurrection. This seems all harsh to those in the moment, though, doesn't it? You're going to let him die so that you can raise him back up. Before I go into that subject and Jesus' response and what he does and doesn't do and the disciples and the rest of this narrative, I kind of need to take a step off to the side for a second and 
address a subject that shows up in this passage, the idea of soul sleep. Now, when referring to the resurrection of the dead, Paul uses the phrase fallen asleep, just as Jesus does here of Lazarus' death. And of those who are going, you know, they've fallen asleep and those who are going to be raised up from the resurrection in both 1 Corinthians and 1 Thessalonians. So when you take those places along with this passage, they've caused some to devise a theory called soul sleep. Now, the idea of soul sleep is that when we die, our souls are asleep and we have no conscious experience of anything after physical death until our resurrection in our glorified bodies at Christ's return. The next idea of soul sleep is that we die. We don't have any conscious thought of the decades, centuries, millennia that pass between our death and Christ's return. And the very next conscious experience that we have is being raised from the dead at Christ's return. Much like what we experience when we fall asleep at night. We go to sleep. We don't have any conscious awareness of the seven or eight hours that pass during the night. And we just wake up as if it was a few seconds after we fell asleep. This is the idea of soul sleep, except instead of it being a few hours, it's a few centuries. While such an idea is understandable, given the way it's presented here in the words of Christ and Paul, the theory of soul sleep does not hold up to Scripture. See, this is what Paul also tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So what Paul's describing is this idea that at our death, we go into become present with the Lord Jesus himself in what we think of and understand as heaven. The other place that does, doesn't, that makes soul sleep inconsistent with scripture is in Revelation when the souls of the martyred saints is talked about in Revelation chapter nine, verses six through 11. And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So in this passage, you have these martyred saints who are very much conscious and aware, sitting there under the altar of heaven, asking, how long, O Lord, until you judge and avenge our blood shed as martyrs? So these passages indicate that we very much have conscious awareness apart from the body after death, And that we do, in fact, join the Lord in heaven, himself in heaven, what we know of as heaven, and experience this period of our souls being present with him there. Now, granted, we have almost nothing to go on what it's really like there. There's only small little snippets here and there, and that's probably, well, it's not probably. It's true. God intentionally withholds from us this understanding of what happens beyond death 
and what it is like there. And it, like so many other things of our faith, we must take by faith, trusting in him. If he has proven himself before in this life, then we can surely trust him in the next. Now, back to this main subject here of Lazarus' death and Jesus somehow loving him even though he lets him die. I always sort of, I don't know if it's sacrilegious and blasphemous or not, but I've always sort of chuckled under my breath here from verse 5 and 6. Now Jesus loved Martha and his sister and Lazarus, and so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Who, Jesus, you don't need to love me like this. If I'm sick, come fast. If loving your people means you delay in coming when they're sick, don't love me, just come heal me. But those very words betray the heart that just wants the healing, not the Savior. Jesus' love is there and present even in suffering and death for Lazarus and Martha and Mary. Their grief is no less of importance to our Father than Lazarus' life and death are to our Father. John goes out of his way now in these five and six verses to be explicit that Jesus' love for Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. It appears John wants us to know Jesus and the Father's divine cosmic plans are not carried out indifferent to the pain and suffering of his people. That even though there's a purpose for the pain, it matters to him that his people hurt. Jesus chooses, Jesus and the Father choose to delay action for a divine purpose while having love for Lazarus and Martha and Mary. I mean, just look at verses 33 through 36 to illustrate how much he loves these three people. When Jesus saw her weeping, Martha and Mary, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. His love through his weeping for Lazarus was so great and intense that even those who had just come to watch the show, so to speak, could see Jesus' love for Lazarus. This is no small thing that Jesus' love was so great and so large for this trio, even though he chose not to act in that moment. You need to see right now, I need to see right now, their pain had a purpose. And we need to see it because we need to see and understand that our pain has a purpose. Even when we cannot possibly understand any way this could have a purpose, it does. 
the events of this week for certain people have a purpose. His love for us is not diminished or weakened by what He allows to happen to us or by divine sovereign act. Look, He divinely, sovereignly acted to let Lazarus die. This wasn't just an inaction. He deliberately chose for Lazarus to die. Yet His love for Lazarus and Mary and Martha was still as large as the expanse of the universe. And so it is for us. Bad things happen and we don't understand why. But it doesn't reduce his love for us, even if we forget it. Then here in verses 7 through 16, we see this back and forth, double meaning ideas of dying to live and living to die. The disciples rightly understand that a return to Judea as so soon after the Feast of Dedication incident, which was there at the end of chapter 10, will lead to Jesus, most likely lead to his being arrested and his death. And so they advise him on based on this factual reality not to go. However, Jesus lives until his appointed hour to die. And that day is not this day. Jesus can walk in the day knowing that it is not the hour for his death. In fact, we discover later that his hour cannot occur until it is night. And now Jesus begins to make plain to the disciples why he must return to Judea and even implies why he waited to go to Bethany so he could awake Lazarus from death. The disciples, not understanding this phrase completely of go to him, they think it means join Lazarus in death because look, death is what's awaiting all of us if we go back to Judea this quick after the Feast of Dedication. If we go there, they're just going to kill us all. Well, fine. If they're going to kill us all, we're going to go to Lazarus and join him in death. That's what they're thinking. This explains Thomas's admonition there at the end of verse 16. Let us also go that we may die with him, Jesus. That we may go and die with Jesus. It's also not a coincidence that John is highlighting one of the disciples besides Peter firm confidence in their willingness to die with Christ, yet they scatter like sheep without a shepherd in the Garden of Gethsemane. However, in this instance, when Thomas says, let's all go with Jesus so we can die with Jesus there in Bethany or Jerusalem, let's just all go and do it. What they don't know is that this is not about death, but about life. This is not about martyrdom, but about eternal life. Jesus goes to conquer death again and bring life to Lazarus and to those who believe. So what? Thank you for this wonderful understanding and exposition of 
all things geographical to the region of Israel. Thank you for highlighting all these subtle, unique things that John writes into his literary narrative to make it interesting in a in a challenging, gripping read. So what? First, I would say, believe that Jesus is in control of all things at all times. There is not one event, not one, nor one second of time that he is not divinely directing and controlling. Not one, ever. That should give us great hope in the midst of difficulty. There is not one second he is not directing and controlling all things. Just as Christ and the Father were glorified in Lazarus' resurrection, so also will they be glorified in our resurrection. On that day when we rise from the grave, it will bring glory to Jesus and God the Father because all the powers and all the entities will know there is no other name than the name of Jesus. Apart from Christ's physical return, each of us here today will one day die. And while our death may glorify Jesus, most often it's just a death. No martyrdom, no God-glorifying sacrificial death. However, our resurrection from the dead will be God-glorifying. Jesus will be glorified when he calls us up out of the grave. Hallelujah. Look, there are days, weeks, I would really like to shed this broken body and be free. Hallelujah. Praise Jesus. I'm more looking forward to the day he calls my name and I rise up out of the grave than I am about the day I shed this broken body. This is not some death wish. This is just the reality is that it stinks to be in an aging, broken body. And the, and the realization of what we receive at our resurrection, oh, how can I not want it? Even want it right now, this very second. And that day, hallelujah, praise Jesus, that day, oh, what a day it will be. Lastly, I would say to you, never doubt his love for you in the most difficult and harsh circumstances. I know how hard this is. I know. I am not speaking to you as one with theoretical abstract ideas on pain and suffering. You all know you all know what this year has been like for me physically, and it is not over. I wish it was, but it's not. And look, I have doubted and questioned his love for me at times. Yet, 
those times of doubt uncovered how much of my belief was contained in my head and not in my heart and soul also. I am still a work in progress on believing his love for me in difficult circumstances. Yet his words and promises are sure, and I strive, oh, I strive for the day that they are by faith and not by knowledge alone. And my brothers and sisters, I plead with you to do the same. Strive for the day that you can believe his love for you in difficult circumstances. And that that truth is there by faith and not by knowledge alone. And of course, all of this, the talk about the resurrection, the hope of his love for us, all of that, every single bit of it hangs on the very hook of Jesus' death for us. His death on the cross that shed His blood so that we can be clean. And what the blood of Jesus washes away, it's washed forever. We may struggle to believe that and receive it for ourselves, but it's not a problem in heaven. Hallelujah, praise Jesus. Every time I deal with my besetting sins and the things that they come back and bite me in the ankle, praise Jesus, those are still washed clean in heaven while I struggle and fight against them here in this earth. And brothers and sisters, that is only possible by His shed blood. Nothing, nothing, nothing can give us anything to hope for without His shed blood and resurrection from the dead. And praise Jesus, that is our hope. Let's pray. O oh Lord, how long, O oh Lord, how long do we struggle with the challenges of this life? And how long, O oh Lord, do we struggle with seeing the evil around us, waiting for you to act as you have said you would so many times throughout Scripture. And we pray, O oh Father, that on this day, when all within us wants to give up, that you would infuse us with the power of the Holy Spirit to not only believe, but to be bold in asserting our confidence and hope in you and that you will act out of your great love for us. In Jesus' holy name, amen.